Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi. How'd you know it was me? I caller ID. Oh, what's it say? Linda trip. It does? I have an unpublished phone, the idiot. The great story here is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. May of 91, Bill Clinton harassed me on the job and then basically told me, let's keep this between ourselves. We had no sexual relationship with this young woman. There is not a sexual relationship. That is accurate. Hello and welcome to a preview episode of Still Watching, colon, American Crime Story, colon, impeachment. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Colin Lawson. <laughs> and joining us for this season of American Crime Story, we have another friend of the pod. It is awards and audio editor Katie Rich. Hello, Katie Rich. Hello. I imagine, I, I assume people listening to this have heard of me. <laughs> We're all we're also on another podcast together. Seems seems like there's some overlap in audience. Yes, we all we all host uh, the award season podcast for Vanity Fair, Little Gold Men. Katie Rich is a friend of the family of uh, and and um you know one of my favorite people of Vanity Fair. So we're and a fan. You guys got me through WandaVision. I had such a great time listening. We are we are sort of all hands on deck for this uh, season of American Crime Story because. Um, this is a very Vanity Fair story, I have to say. Just like the O.J. Simpson uh, story was a very Vanity Fair story. And um, so you'll be hearing, Katie, Katie will be with us all season, which I'm so excited for. And, um, Me too. And, uh, and you'll also be hearing from some of our other... VF staff uh, in the interview segments, usually you just have to hear me yammer for two hours, but we, we all have some other folks uh, sort of doing some of the interviews. So uh, you'll get a variety of perspective and it's not just me, which I think is a much better way to cover a show. So uh, so that is what we will be doing for this season. Um, and then we also want to stay off off the top 
that Monica Lewinsky is a contributing editor uh, at Vanity Fair. We have not talked to her yet, we three, about this podcast. She knows, I, you know, I'm pretty sure she knows we're doing it, but, you know, it's not, it's not something that um, she is deeply involved in, but we have a connection to her. And uh, Katie, you wanted to mention her, her sort of legacy with VF, right? Yeah, I mean, really right around uh, the time that we had all three started working here, she kind of published uh, an essay breaking her silence in some way about what happened to her in 1998, which you see uh, on the show uh, in June 2014. You can find the essay. It's really great. Just, you know, about her telling her own story. And I think that's part of what this show is, too. She's a producer on impeachment, and it's her, you know, reclaiming this truly uh, titanic, life-altering thing that happened to her and was so out of her control for a long time. And I think that process really started with that VFSA. So everybody should read it. And interestingly, um, I went to a preview screening of the first episode of this like a month ago, and they mentioned, and I think they've mentioned a lot since in press materials, that this is the first time that the crime story franchise is directly working with one of the subjects of the story. Mm, yeah. Nor normally, they'd kind of been at a remove but they felt that, you know, because Lewinsky is a public figure who talks about what she went through and, you know, it, it's so much about how media mistreated her um, and women like her uh, that they wanted to involve her. So I think it uh, that's just an interesting thing to note. So if, you, if you're just joining us for the first time on this podcast, um, what we usually do and what we will be doing for the show is Richard and I pick a show. We watch it kind of obsessively and closely and we talk about it week to week. We try to have interviews with folks who've worked on the show. We've got a great interview this week with um, executive producer, uh, writer uh, Sarah Burgess. Uh, so we'll be previewing what's to come. We won't be really spoiling we've seen a bunch of the episodes we won't be spoiling anything but also the, there's the question of can you spoil history so all of that um is on the table but i have gone i have been fully ostriching into the world of of all of this uh for the last few weeks and so i'm really excited for us to to get into all the context um that was that was going on we've all been there before you're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration. A kitchen with no space. A toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. 
Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Something I want to start with uh, is the casting. This is usually something we do in a preview episode as we talk a bit about the cast to get people oriented um, about who we'll be talking about. So I'm just going to run down the main cast and then sort of throw to you guys to see what you're thinking and and if you want to talk about some of the other players. So the main core cast here, we have uh, Ryan Murphy verse veteran Sarah Paulson as Linda Tripp, Beanie Feldstein as Monica Lewinsky, Annalie Ashford as Paula Jones, Margot Martindale as Lucianne Goldberg, who is Linda Tripp's literary agent and a wild figure, uh, Edie Falco as Hillary Clinton, and Clive Owen as Bill Clinton, um, and then a raft of other characters played by people you've heard of. Um, and uh, so, yeah, let's go with Katie. Katie, what do you think of of the cast here? I mean, I think the power of Beanie Feldstein in this role is enormous. Like, she and Monica Lewinsky did give, gave an interview together for The Hollywood Reporter, kind of talking about their connection. They're two Jewish girls from L.A. They seem to clearly have a really deep affection for each other. Um, she is someone we've loved in kind of everything that we've seen her in. She's obviously a huge standout in Lady Bird, not the titular role, but <laughs> the one who's best remembered for that. Um, and I think we're going to talk a lot on this season about, and the, 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 the show itself deals a lot with how women and their bodies were treated in the 90s. And I think Beanie Feldstein is somebody who has a larger body than many actresses, playing Monica Lewinsky, who was pinned against the wall for what was perceived as unacceptable weight at the time. Like, there's a huge amount of power in that, even in addition to Beanie Feldstein being a great actress and someone who you really sympathize with. She's such a likable person that to step into the roles of someone who is, like, one of the most villainized public figures of the late 90s is a powerful choice in and of itself. How about you, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I I think that I was wary when the casting was announced of a certain fatigue with like okay here we go another paulson wig and whatever you know like more of the ryan murphy coalition of people who we see in everything you know and i think these projects where you're kind of doing like a who's who like oh there it's that it's that celebrity playing that famous person and that celebrity playing that famous person like it can be a little exhausting i guess but what i think is so interesting about this particular project is that they really did seem to think about that casting it doesn't play as stunt casting um, and, you know, watching what I have of this series, you really see, like, why Paulson works so specifically well for the role of Linda Tripp, who is kind of our lead here, um, I, I think, roughly. Um, so I think it, it, it feels like, as, as the, the past American crime stories have, like, the, the, the casting feels much less of a stunt than it does actually uh, thought through and, and practical. Yeah, and that's what it felt on OJ too, right? You know, like the yeah, OJ casting, yeah. I think, had a lot of the uh, the same kind of thing being like, like, oh my God, Cuba Gooding Jr. is OJ Simpson. And the, the kind of miracle of that show was how much it made you really invest in these characters. I think especially Sarah Paulson as Marsha Clark. And um, there's a similar thing happening here. Yeah, and I mean, we should talk about um, sort of one of the biggest conversations already existent around the show before it premiered is Sarah Paulson and um, the fact that in order to play Linda Tripp, who looks very different from Sarah Paulson, there are prosthetics, there is, you know, a fat suit padding, however you want to call it. Um, Sarah gave an interview to the LA Times talking about um, sort of her regrets slash education 
around this idea of, you know, the question is, why not just hire an actress who looks more like Linda Tripp instead of, you know, why not employ a fatter actress than this thin woman playing Linda Tripp? And, um, you know, Sarah Paulson was uh, in that interview lightly defensive but also you know doing that really good pr thing of like i'm listening to the feedback and i am i'm hearing and i'm learning and i'm educating myself um but what i will say is that you know all that being true and i had some discomfort around it um she's incredible in this role Mm -hmm. she's really really good and i was thinking about like i don't want to i don't really want to go hard on defending this choice because i i have some issues with the choice but also if Gary Oldman can win an Oscar for playing Winston Churchill just a couple of years ago, like uh, I'm not, I'm not defending that either, but I'm just sort of like, I, I don't know that this is fully off the table for me. Gary I, Oldman, uh, someone who famously no one's ever had a problem with his behavior. Right. 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 <laughs> I don't know. A sterling I, reputation. I, I, I feel <laughs> conflicted. I went in deeply skeptical. I came out the other side thinking Sarah Paulson is incredible in this role. So I don't know. It's something I think will be, talking about an ongoing way i would also really like this is where i'm gonna drop this i would really like to hear from listeners on this still watching pod at gmail.com uh is where you can reach us we love listener emails on this show i want to know how that's all sitting with you guys and how you feel about it because it's something we we will want to kind of keep talking about especially because and i talked to sarah burgess about this in our interview monica and sarah uh, sorry monica and linda were very preoccupied with their bodies and their body image and 90s diet culture and all of that that's an element of the show it's an element of their relationship so i think it's something that's interesting to talk about it in a meta way around the show as well yeah it's i'm excited to talk about that and the way that the show depicts people who are fixated on their bodies and their size without being fixated on it itself like the the way that the camera shoots both of these women i think is just it's 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 respectful it doesn't linger on the fact that sarah paulson's in the fat suit it's like not using it to be like oh my god can you believe she looks like that like it's much more subtle and thoughtful than that and i'm interested to hear from people on that as well yeah it doesn't feel like the physical transformation the prosthetics all that is the performance you know i think there there Mm -hmm. is a a valid criticism of a lot of stuff that gets you know lots of awards and praise and it's like well that's just like the makeup like the you know oh how brave of this beautiful actor to right you know ugly themselves up or whatever that does not feel like what's happening here and i think that what has been so successful in a broader sense with the american crime story franchise is that they recognize a careful balance between the sort of lurid, sensational reason why this show was made mm-hmm. and the humanity that needs to be teased out if it's going to be anything worthwhile. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think this, from what I've seen, this show does that uh, just as OJ did and, and um, Assassination of Johnny Versace did. Um, and I think something crucial about that, and I would like to hear from uh, listeners of all age ranges about this, and you know, maybe you were a full adult when this was going on and you have a very different memory of it than I do when I was, you know, 15, 16, when this was all happening, that 20-ish year remove is just like the perfect distance because we have still extant memory in our head of like that time and new stuff we saw on the news and names we heard, but it's dimmed some. And of course, it, we were never getting the full picture. And so kind of using what we remember and then building off of that and showing us something new and subverting uh, what we always thought we knew about it. Um, is really the I think the genius of these shows, and and I think impeachment does that as well. And I think a, that part of that subversion is exactly what we've 
you know, you guys were talking about in terms of like body image and, and how Lewinsky and Tripp were treated in the media and written about and satirized on Saturday Night Live and all that stuff. Um, I feel like it is as much a condemnation of the people doing that in the time. Um, it's also a condemnation of like a lot of people like me and whoever else who thought of this story in, in that way, because we kind of, you know, that's what we, the information that that's how we received it. Yeah. I wanted to circle back to that thing that Katie said about um, the way in which OJ took um, a figure that, that we thought we knew um, a woman uh, specifically who had been sort of uh, pilloried played by, played by Sarah Paulson and, um, and made us look at her differently and in Marshall Clark and, What's interesting about what's happening with Linda Tripp here is I think it's something even more challenging because like the truth is Marshall Clark did nothing wrong at all. And that's not true of Linda Tripp. But what mm -hmm. I think the show is forcing us to do is consider the whole human of Linda Tripp and not Linda Tripp as just a cardboard monster. I have questions about how Linda Tripp is treating the show, but talking to Sarah Burgess about it, I really think what she's trying to do here is kind of that Marsha Clark thing, but with someone who's much harder to access and understand and relate to. And that's, I think, another layer of sophisticated storytelling of what's going on here. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I've been thinking about, and Joanna, you and I talk about you're wrong about all the time, and the you're wrong about-ification of culture has been happening in a lot of different places beyond that really wonderful podcast, you know, with Framing Britney Spears and all this stuff. And Linda Tripp is a much more complicated character than that because she really did do an objectively terrible thing in taping her friend and sharing those tapes with the FBI. And the show gets into why she did it and why she thought it was the right thing to do, but also why she had the kind of personality about, like, you probably shouldn't trust this woman to be your friend. And that's okay. She can still be worthy of thought and sympathy to some extent without necessarily being a nice person, which is a really hard thing to pull off. And the show does really well. Yeah, and and I think you know in elsewhere in this show, you know, we're going to spend some time with Ann Coulter and <laughs> Kenneth Starr <laughs> and people who are very much on the other end of the ideological spectrum than I think the three of us are, um, and probably most of our listeners are. Um, and there could be a criticism out there that like, well, you're just trying to you know humanize these horrible people and all the awful things they say. You're trying to make it funny and appealing, and and I get that, but I think. You know, it also is valuable in a way to spend that time with them and to see these mechanics uh, for what they were and what they still are um, to get hopefully a fuller and more compassionate and more understanding sense of it. So we can actually lay blame and villainy on people in the right proportion and uh, with the kind of with the right approach, I guess. Something that we talked a lot about. Uh, when we were covering OJ, not so much, I think, Richard, when you and I covered Versace, but I need to think about that a little bit more. But something that the American Crime Story franchise uh, does is give us origin stories of certain things that are existent in the culture, right? And so with, with OJ Simpson, you could think of it as sort of like, oh, the... The origin story of reality TV, the origin story of, of everything Kardashian, et cetera, et cetera, something like that. Um, other other things, too. But that's just one thing that comes to mind. Um, there are figures you mentioned in Ann Coulter, George uh, Conway, Kathleen Willey, who played by Elizabeth Reeser, shows up in the first episode. And I had forgotten that Kathleen Willey is one of the women that Trump brought to 
his debate with Hillary Clinton. So a lot, you know, obviously the Clintons are an enduring conversation that we've never stopped having since um, 98. But uh, these other figures, um, especially because of Clinton's uh, campaigns for president, um, keep cropping up. Um, and the other origin story context that we'll probably wind up talking about around this time is um, this really is the beginning of a certain flavor of partisan politics in that when Newt Gingrich was um, made speaker, uh, he was made so on the back of this approach that was attacking the other side, not on the issues, but on character. Um, and that became sort of de rigueur uh, going forward. But it wasn't necessarily how things were done beforehand. Um, not that everything was hunky-dory between the two sides, but just that that it was more about the substance. And then it became about these sort of like, um, you know, bad faith arguments about people and 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 wild, uh, you know, concocted scandals and and very real scandals as well, you know. And what was helping disseminate all that? The internet, which right. was not really coming to bear on the OJ story nor the Versace story. And yet here it is starting to rear its head uh, in the form of Matt Drudge, played by Billy Eichner. Um, and really, like, you know, the, the, the social social media was still a ways off and, and, you know, or at least the forms of social media we, we know now. Um, but that kind of... I guess sort of like that, that everyone could sort of have a seat at the gossip table, mm -hmm. you know, that that was starting mm. to happen, that someone like Drudge could kind of rise up and be in those rooms with actual movers and shakers because of an influential AOL blog, I guess it was at the time. <laughs> um, I think that's also really crucial to sort of understanding this era. And another great thing that this show does with its kind of 23 year ish remove uh, from now is like, we can get that origin story in some senses, or at least a, a, a part of that origin story as it came to inform so much about like politics and media now. Completely. And, and I think that idea, what, one of the most famous phrases said about this whole impeachment trial, et cetera, is Hillary Clinton calling it a vast right wing conspiracy. Right. And um, I was, I was reading up on um, these behind the scenes mover and shakers, um, Matt Drudge being, an aspect of that, but Ann Coulter and George Conray, et cetera. And uh, Ann Coulter gave an interview at the time to, I think it was Newsweek, where she uh, she's like, uh, we are a small, intricately knit right-wing conspiracy. <laughs> like, not a vast right, but like, we're small. And it's true. Like, what's when Hillary Clinton said that, it is true that there was, there were people working behind the scenes to push all of these lawsuits etc these women forward with the intent purpose of ending the clinton presidency which is is you know yeah and and you know we're gonna see echoes through uncomfortable echoes i think through how we thought about the trump like we three probably thought about the trump presidency and the way that they thought about the clinton presidency and all that sort of stuff I, you know it's i don't think it's a coincidence that this is called impeachment rather than using either Clinton or Lewinsky's or Tripp's uh, hmm. name in the title, do you know? So. Although it is interesting for how much of the season of what we've seen so far is not like, it, it takes a long time to get to the impeachment part. Like, it, I do get the feeling that, like, the human drama behind it is going to be much more of a focus than, like, the process of impeachment, partly because 
uh, as you know, I re-listened to Slow Burn, which Joanna, we can talk about as like a source material for this. And like the impeachment was kind of always a uh, no one ever thought he was going to be impeached and removed from office. So it was like a little bit of a formality. But yeah, it's a uh, it's kind of more about how we got there than than the impeachment itself. Yeah, I think this is not a, a, a courtroom drama for sure. Um, and yeah. I mean, should we talk about how we haven't talked about that? We haven't really said the name Bill Clinton yet. <laughs> how, how he plays Who? into this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, something I guess that, you know, Ryan Murphy. So the the team, the consistent team in the ACS um, I'm I'm kicking around whether or not we want to call it ACS. I don't know. Uh, franchise are Brad Simpson, Nina Jacobson, and Ryan Murphy. And Ryan Murphy's idea, even before Sarah Burgess comes on to sort of quote unquote showrun, is uh, is to do it from the perspective of the women um, rather than from center it on Clinton himself, um, which I think is interesting. But it does. And it's not like Clinton's not. You will see Clive Owen's Bill Clinton impression. I promise you, it's there. It's around. Yeah. But it's uh, it's it's more marginal. The main relationship is, I think, Monica and Linda. And uh, and I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to me to keep Bill sort of marginalized. I don't know. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I mean, I think that the approach of centering on the women makes sense. Um, it's it also presents a risk where it's like how much how much of that that sort of intense up close gaze it could potentially turn into leering or mocking or whatever you know um i i i have faith that the show will not do that um and but i, I think it's kind of a, a sort of catch 22 because like i also really don't want to watch the show that's about bill clinton you yeah. know mm-hmm. <laughs> um and i think that like if clive owen who is a really interesting casting choice um is used in the right measure which i trust this show to do uh he'll loom as large as he needs to loom without kind of taking up the oxygen from um these other stories we know how bill clinton's story went pretty much you know and at where it is now and where it was then um but this is the much more like behind the scenes kind of here's what actually happened and and in order to tell that story you have to um uh, look at the people who were sort of operating under his influence, e- either in a negative or positive way. And I think there's a fundamental question of the show of like why people behave the way that they did. You know, why Linda Tripp did this really, uh, in- you know, incredible betraying thing. Like why Monica Lewinsky did something as risky as starting an affair with the president. And like, A, it's just hard to get into Bill Clinton's head. Like, I don't think he's ever going to give us an on- honest answer about why he did this. Like, I'm not sure he's capable of it. And B, I don't really I'm not that interested in it. Like the story of like a man in power abusing that power is one that's really familiar. And the story of the other people is much less so. So I'm glad that it's not lingering and they'd be like, why did the most powerful man in the world sleep with an intern? Because like there's only a handful of answers and none of them are going to be that surprising, I don't think. Yeah. And I th- I think that. um uh, well, Actually, I want to ask you, this. have either of you ever met Bill Clinton? No. No, I met Al Gore at a BF Can party once. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that I've ever told you the story, but I spent like a day standing next to Bill Clinton once um, because he was on book tour. And in my former life, I used to arrange book events and he came through a bookstore that I was managing in San Francisco uh, for his memoir. Uh, and he did a, like a many hours long signing uh where and unlike other people who like to sit behind a desk he just he just wanted to stand up and 
just meet each person. Uh, and I, like there was so there was secret service there. I got there at like 4am to put butcher paper on the windows. Like it was an insane day, but I stood right next to Bill Clinton. So I saw him interact with every single person, including my mom who came through the line. Um, and it was just the wildest thing I've ever seen in terms of charisma, in terms of making every single person feel like they were the only person on the planet. He said something different to every person. Like I've just never seen anything like it. And so I I just think that that is an aspect of this story that like when you think about like how did this person kind of get away with he did and he didn't like what he got away with. Like, I just can't, I've never, I've never in my life, not even when Brad Pitt walked past us at the Vanity Fair Oscar party experienced <laughs> a charisma, you know, eruption the way that I saw with Bill Clinton. And it's, it's, it's kind of terrifying. Like what, what he might, uh, what he has accomplished with that. Do you know what I mean? Like it's. Oh yeah. yeah. And that's why Monica uh, on the show says something really to that effect that like when he is talking to you, you are like the sun shines on you in a way that it doesn't with anybody else. And I think you get that more from how uh, Beanie Feldstein performs that Ben from Clive Owen himself in the show, which I think is a good way to present it that like you kind of believe it when, when she's saying it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, politicians, I haven't met many in my life, but they're really scary, weird people. I mean, like it's a very <laughs> odd thing to want to be. You know, it's like the I forget who the quote is. It's like the best person for a job is the person who doesn't want who doesn't want it. You know, mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, or for leadership or whatever. Um, it's really strange to want to be president. It's weird to want to be a senator. Even like it's just a it's a it's yeah. a it's a weird world. And 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 we obviously all suffer, thrive, whatever. Like have a whole human experience under the aegis of far away charismatic figures and yes we could do a show that's about that charismatic figure we've had a lot of stuff about people like that is not specifically bill clinton maybe but like i i think it's more worthwhile in order to understand how this story relates to our present tense yeah to look at people who in a weird way were like us like kind of under the the glow of that entity um rather than actually kind of stare right at the entity itself I never like to assign homework for a TV show. You should be able to just like walk into a TV show um, and enjoy it for what it is. Um, but uh, since I'm the kind of person who likes to do a lot of supplemental reading always, um, I want to talk about some of the things that I've been listening to and watching and some of the stuff that Sarah Burgess talked about influencing her. Um, the second season of Slow Burn, uh, which Katie already mentioned that podcast, though I have, I, I'm just going to voice some slight, it's a really good season, uh, podcast season. My only hesitancy is there were no women uh, in producing roles on that podcast. Uh, But there is an incredible interview with Linda Tripp that I really recommend that you listen to. Really incredible. Um, That came out August 2018. That was the 20th, you know, 2018, 20th anniversary. That's when we get Slow Burn Season 2. And then we get The Clinton Affair, which is um, a docuseries that I think aired on Annie, but you can watch on Hulu. Um, that also came out in 2018. That one had Monica Lewinsky's active participation, and she wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about why she chose to um, get involved in that. And that the that naming that the Clinton affair um, was a you know sort of intentional. Uh, let's not call it the Lewinsky scandal anymore. <laughs> let's let's mm-hmm. let's center something else. That's why I think it's really interesting that impeachment, this very neutral word, is is the word of the title here. Um, Sarah mentioned this book, The Death of American Virtue, Virtue Clinton versus Starr, which 
was written by Ken Gormley, came out in 2010. Um, I'm working my way through that. It is fascinating. Um, if you want to read that, fascinating. And then uh, Sarah also mentioned Hillary, the four-part docuseries that came out 2020 on Hulu um, as something that she looked very closely at. Um, so that's all stuff that you can get involved with. Katie, I know you, you, you mentioned already you re-listened to Slow Burn. Did anything crop up that, um, I don't know, surprised or enticed or enhanced your experience of watching the show? I listened to it all after I had, like, flown through the first six episodes of the show. So it was a lot of being like, oh, my God, this is, like, exactly the pattern of an episode that's going yeah. on. Um, I mean, I did text you about how Steve Kornacki shows up <laughs> in an episode as a expert on the rise of the religious right, which is fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a really good primer for the names that you're going to hear from. And I think if you uh, it could be a fun game to listen to and be like, oh, this person sounds like this person. Oh, wait, they play them on the show because there's more than a few of those. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they go really nicely hand in hand. I think they they were they both kind of revealed aspects of each other. But I would emphasize, like, I watched it with like no prep of historical background other than you know I had listened to Slipper a couple years earlier, so I guess that is prep. But I don't think you need to if you feel like no. you might be lost. It does a very good job of setting up the stakes of the story. Yeah. How about you, Richard? Is there anything like not that you've listened to or whatever, but just um, that you're curious about in a supplemental way? Um, I mean, I have to do my own kind of I, I need to listen to some of those podcasts and stuff like that um i think not to be pretentious but like in my sort of like critical role i kind of want to like look at the show as its own entity yeah. you know what i mean because um it needs to it needs to stand on its own you know i think that's um right. but i hope that in our um conversations over the course of this podcast i will be enlightened is it true or is this just some old urban legend that chelsea clinton and kenneth Starr's daughter were at stanford at the same time Ooh, I don't know. Isn't that? I think I think that was true. Which is sort of I I know that the show is not going to go into Chelsea at all, but um, and she was going to be played by Jessica Lange, right? Because that was Ryan Murphy's re- yeah, yeah, yeah. request. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And then it was and then it was and then it was Zachary Quinto, and then he was like, <laughs> right. "Never mind, I'm not right. going to yeah. do it." Yeah, you know what? We're going to cut this out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously so much, and I think that we are at the again. I'm going to keep beating this horse, but like. We are at the right exact moment, timeline-wise, to be looking back at this because um, already from what I've seen, like, there is so much relevance to now, um, partly because, like, these pe- most of these people are still alive and a lot of them are still wielding power, but also just because, like, things aren't that different. You know, yeah. this, maybe it's because mm-hmm. this is what started it. Well, I think, you know, looking at it through a post-Me Too lens is interesting. But yeah, there are, there's same as it ever was in a lot of ways. And there are people, as I said, there's people, movers and shakers in this show that are still moving and shaking uh, things. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to do extra credit reading or listening or watching or anything like that. I was just remembering that when The People versus OJ came out, I ordered Faye Resnick's book off of like eBay and read it. <laughs> And wrote a post about it. And, and a red phone in her house <laughs> rang and they were like, hey, we have a sale. We sold it. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's uh, it's not necessary to go the directions I go in sometimes, but I think that's what makes this podcast so fun. Um, so the, the, the combination of, of Richard uh, just being really fun and watching the show and me being too much of a nerd, Katie too, is too much of a nerd sometimes. Um, I think the only context oh, yeah. that will really help uh, in the first episode, there's there's stuff we could talk about. Whitewater, Travelgate, Troopergate, all these gates, etc. Um, oh, my God. But, uh, but Vince Foster, which is where the series sort of opens, um, is a figure that I think is worth contextualizing slightly. This is a name that you might 
have heard a lot actually during the Clinton presidential campaign. It came up again, but this is a friend of the Clintons um, who came with them from Arkansas to the White House, um, had some mental health issues all his life, um, took his life while working in the White House. And to this day, Clinton detractors will insist that they had him murdered to silence him. Um, Slowburn makes a very convincing case about how their wish to protect, uh, you know, Vince Foster uh, and and sort of shield the discussion around his mental health uh, really sort of uh, helped create this aura of secrecy around him in the first place and all that sort of stuff like that. But it starts with Vince and Linda Tripp worked for him, which is a wild sort of connection. But that's Vince Foster is, is where the all starts. Did you guys ever watch, see the movie Primary Colors? Oh, yeah. No, I never did. I think about oh, it's good. It's good. I think about it all the time. I rewatched it kind of um, like a year ago or something like that. And in that film, Kathy Bates plays a character who's like, it's it's all sort of Clinton adjacent. John Travolta is like playing a Clinton esque figure. Emma Thompson's playing a Hillary esque figure, etc. But Kathy Bates plays this like long time friend of theirs who kills herself at one point. So I just think you know she's the Vince Foster sort of. Um, corollary there it's it's a really good movie um but yeah that's where it all starts so i think it's just important to have that in mind that's the only context i would want people to kind of start with and and, and, I, and it reared its head again when that was it the bernie staffer was shot and killed outside of his apartment right and yes pe- people yeah. were accusing the clintons of doing it or something, yeah no people right? the i did think a lot through watching all these episodes about how much of the Hillary Clinton 2016 campaign was tied up in this period yeah. about all the like the, the the way that scandals can kind of surround the Clintons through no fault of their own in some cases. And then, you know, I think Slowburn does a really good job of explaining how like all this whitewater stuff happens and they somehow just manage to keep shooting themselves in the foot over something that like really wasn't a scandal. Um, and, and part of it was because the landscape was shifting so much under their feet that they couldn't they didn't really see how much, how big of a deal it was going to be. So if you do want to like I think as a good, really concise Clinton scandals and supposed scandals primer. The first couple episodes of Slow Burn are helpful there. Yeah, I mean, I understand Travelgate now, so that's fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. But you don't have to to enjoy the show is the point. And there is, as with any American Crime Story uh, show, plenty of juice uh, to go with your medicine. So, all of that. I think the only other context I want to say before we head in to our conversation with Sarah is uh, Linda Tripp retired uh, to is it Vermont to open up a year round? No, Virginia. Oh, Virginia, right? Okay, to open up a year round uh, Christmas store. Uh, that's just some context I, because Sarah talks about Linda at Christmas, and I want you guys to know why. Um, and also that Linda Tripp passed away. Uh, in twenty twenty. So, but this show was already a couple of years into production. Uh, before Linda Tripp passed away. So, um, that is all I want to say. Is there anything else you guys? want to say as a preview i'm really excited to be part of this thank you guys for having me (laughs) richard anything else you want to say uh no i'm just i'm excited i i think this is a a a very good way to kick off the fall something kind of dense and dark and, and interesting Something that we we talked about a little bit is that uh, the last American crime story, um, the assassination of Johnny Versace, was our first still watching season. So um, it's exciting. It's been a while, but it's exciting, you know. 
in my mind, we did a whole season on uh, OJ because we thought about it and talked about it so much at the time. <laughs> yeah. We just yeah. didn't have a podcast yeah. yet for Our it. Slack conversations. Well, I was recording you yeah, guys, so much. actually I could, I could, oh, yeah. Yeah. I could Thanks, post Linda. those. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So let's go now to our conversation with Sarah Burgess. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you about this. This uh, show that I've seen seven episodes of, but our listeners Mm. haven't seen any of. (laughs) Um, And let me just preface it by saying, like, everyone at Vanity Fair is already obsessed with this show. They are devouring the screeners. As soon as we get a new one, people are watching it immediately. People are really excited. How are you feeling about people finally getting to see this thing that you've been working on? I mean, I'm a mess. I'm, I'm freaked out. <laughs> I'm terrified. I, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm, um, I'm like losing chunks of time, just like walking around. I've been staying like in an Airbnb near the Santa Monica private airport. I'm just sort of walking around, staring at planes. Um, I, um, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it you know, we shot this. I, I, uh, this is my first thing that will ever be on television. We shot it for a really long time and I'm used to having all this sort of, um, you know, a lot of say and control over everything that's happening and suddenly it flips. So I'm just basically in a panicked state. That's who you're talking to this morning, <laughs> you know? Um, and I'm, and now I just want to interview you about what you think about the show, but I won't, um, well, your podcast. <laughs> well, you and I can do that interview later, but right. let's, okay, let's, let's, let's start with, um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're a playwright, um, and, and you've done some, some great work, obviously great work that made the producers of the show excited to work with you. I'm curious, what do you feel like was in your toolkit of your previous work that you drew on to work on this project? That's a really good question. Um, my first play is about the private, about private equity. I got very, very, very obsessed with the language of private equity. And I really was excited to try to write a play inside an office at a private equity firm where people are speaking in that language and you don't, you can't entirely as an audience member, you maybe can't entirely understand it. I don't know why it's like the most boring idea for a play, but I got really excited to, to write kind of a comedy in that way. So I, I guess there's something to me about, um, and you know, I, I, that play to some degree, I think as I step back is about, um, people who are operating within a system that's acting on them in a certain way, who are, you know, incentivized to make a lot of money and it affects their behavior and I think affects who they are. And so uh, that seems a little relevant to some of what happens in our show. I think I, I, um, I always wanted to write a office comedy kind of about the Pentagon because my, both of my parents worked there. So there are things about this story 
that um, I think resonated with me and made me feel connected to it that I could sort of approach in the same way. You know, um, it's a story kind of about, I think, especially when you think about Linda Tripp, someone who's working within this system and within these institutions that mean a lot to her and maybe doesn't always realize how they're motivating her behavior. And that felt in conversation with that. As far as just like my work life, you know, there are things obviously in TV production that are so different, like violently different from the theater. Um, I know I use her violently. Um, <laughs> I told you I'm not in a great place, but I, you know, I mean, look, obviously, um, you know, working with a director is something I'm familiar with. I, I probably felt a comfort working with the actors. You know, I, I, it takes a few play productions to get used to getting to know actors and seeing what they need from you and, and, what they don't need from you um, was a little different here because of COVID. So we didn't have a time. We didn't have time to chat casually as you might usually beforehand. Um, But that was, that was also somewhat familiar to me. Um, But of course, so much of this was entirely, entirely uh, different from my experiences before. So what made, I mean, uh, you know, you've let me know that death of American virtue is, is a book you read that got Mm -hmm. you sort of really interested in telling the story, but can you take me a little bit more through your process of, this project comes your way. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things you're thinking about when you're thinking about saying yes to it? At first, I, um, you know, I, I was a kid when this happened. And so, um, you know, I, the things I'm thinking about, I think, were the, the first thing you're always thinking about, which now I find myself in an abyss searching for again, is like just that feeling of like, oh, I the right writer for this. Is there something that I you can write whatever you want, but you, you, you have that choice, but you don't have a choice. You can't, you have no say over what you can actually give life to. Like, I'm sure I could try to write. I mean, maybe I'll do this now, but you know, I could, I could try to write some kind of like, you know, alien action movie. And again, maybe that's what I'll just now go try to do, but like, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's actually a bad way to phrase it. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I, you're searching for that. You're searching for the thing, like a way in, I guess, or something that feels alive to you. Um, and so I think I, I read a few, um, books that were written at the time. I was struck by how much the books focus narrowly on the lawyers and sort of star versus Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky, of course, is, is we all know is sort of, de- maybe we don't all know, but I'm just talking to myself, but, you know, is depicted as a sort of two dimensional, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's like this misogynistic betrayal of Monica, obviously, is this sort of um, unintelligent, wayward person who like messed everything up for everybody, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was searching for uh, something I could give life to. I read a few books. That was one of them. Um, you know, I did listen to Slow Burn. I think that came around that time. Um, there were some pieces of that that were really interesting to me. I just remember there was a turn at some point when I, I think, particularly found a way into the story sort of honestly through Linda Tripp, um, reading some of her interviews, the way that she spoke um, to me suggested a whole person and a character I would sort of be, I'd be excited to write, you know, there's something ridiculous, but human um, and funny about her. And I just, um, you know, I can go into elaborate detail about this if you want, but there were just some it became a voice, uh, the voice sort of did come to me for that character that I, that felt um, sort of natural and um, had a lot of dimension, I guess I would say. And there's always, there's obviously a mystery at the center of that character, but why would you do this thing? And so that, that pulled me into, you know. 
I was re-listening to, I'm going to zoom ahead, I guess, to one of my Linda Tripp questions then, because like I was listening to that really interesting episode of Slow Burn where he talks to Linda mm-hmm. and um, something she says a couple different times is she was like, you know, here I am a, a villain out of central casting. Like you couldn't uh-huh. have, you couldn't have found a better villain out of central casting. Yeah. And so I'm wondering how do you, do you think there is a villain in the story? Is that villain Linda Tripp or is that not how you think about this story at all? I think that like, I mean, when, when Linda said I'm a villain out of central casting, I think she was talking so much about her, the way that she was um, ridiculed um, yeah. for her appearance. Um, and I think I find that interview so fascinating because of, I think there's something about the way she talks about what she did what she actually says versus I think felt there seemed to be a fundamental loneliness to Linda Tripp that be underneath why she did what she did and a loneliness that I, I felt at least as I was writing the character of Linda Tripp, that maybe she carried with her for a long time after this period. Um, I'm okay with saying she's the villain, but I can still, you know, identify with parts of her and give some unnamed part of myself to her as the writer Um, there are multiple villains in the story, something I feel, you know, one answer could be the villain. And I think this is true is sort of all of us who sort of happily consumed the consumed, um, these women, Paula Jones, Monica, and even Linda, and, and sort of, um, for over a year, you know, I think just uh, sort of either tore them apart or use them as a distraction from our own ennui, or, you know, and all this, you know, um, I certainly didn't sit down to write and say, here's a, you know, I didn't sit down to write and say, well, let me just make very clear to people that Linda Tripp and Bill Clinton are horrible people who did a, you know, who, um, you know, intentionally did a terrible thing. I think these people are acting on instinct. And um, I always, you know, going back to sort of my, I think is, I I am always drawn to um, people who maybe on paper are doing sort of terrible things and not making them likable and not, totally orienting, not making you root for them, yeah. but just letting them exist, you know, and finding the ways that they're, that, that's, if that answers your question, sort of a tangled way. Um, now I sound triggered by your, your villain question. I'm just going to stare off, you know? No, no, no. I, <laughs> does that I, make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, like, I don't think something that I think is maybe the most interesting about this version of the story, because we've gotten a few different versions, whether it's books or television docudrama or, or, or a podcast is the, your interest in Linda Tripp. That's what I think is most interesting about this story. There's so Did you pick that you're talking about, is that something you thought based on watching it or just from hearing me ramble to you on this? Yeah. No watching. I mean, you know, okay. we've got, we've got Sarah Paulson, who is, you know, a staple of the Ryan Murphy verse, like in this role. And that already signals to us that this is a character that we're going to like be wanting to pay a mm-hmm. lot of extra yeah, attention, obviously. Um, but I just think, I think when we come out of this, here's what I think. I, I think it's interesting that Linda never wrote a book. I never thought about it until she mentioned it, but I think it is interesting that she never wrote that book. And I think it's interesting that we've heard to our benefit. We've heard a lot from Monica. Monica mm-hmm. Lewinsky is someone I really admire. And I Me think too. it's really great the way in which she is taking control continues to take control of her story mm-hmm. um so we have that narrative we've we've definitely heard the clinton narrative loud and clear <laughs> right because they've had the loudest like the biggest platform yeah. so i think the linda trip does remain like the biggest 
question mm-hmm. mark in this equation. And um, mm-hmm. I'm interested, I'm excited for all of us to watch this show and then talk about her as a really complicated figure for the next however many weeks. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And I, I, um, I, well, I should say she did kind of write a book towards the very end of her life. I mean, one thing that's happened to me in this is I, I, I kind of took this job in like mid late 2018 and I was thinking about her every day, you know, in Virginia running her Christmas store. And I, <laughs> because, you know, I, I look I, the reality is I, I want to make it sound like I've now, you know, I'm like doing like the sort of like, you know, like, you know, uh, Robert Caro level treatment of Linda, you know, just like an obsession with, you know, I just, yeah. um, I thought about her every day, you know, and, and I actually always thought about what she would say about the show and because she's such a, she's so funny to me. And like, she always, she, she would, I mean, the reality is through the nineties and sort of insert herself in these Clinton scandals, you know, I mean, she, she sort of was a zealot and she, I didn't get to tell the story, but she like testified before the Senate in 1995. And, you know, she knew Vince Foster and yet sort of would make it sound shady the way he passed away. It's like, it's always orienting herself subtly to be the center of a story, which is not a noble thing to do, but I think it's sort of human. And we have, we all have that in ourselves. And I was always excited to see how she would react to the show. And then she, um, she passed away in April, 2020. And it was a very, I've just never had that experience to sort of think of a real person existing. I'd never written about real people, period. And then to have them just go into oblivion in the middle of it um, was a sort of shocking thing. So I, I hope that this, anyway, bef- before she died, she actually did sort of publish, a, a book was published that was co-written by an author that she was a fan of, on, that she read his like Amazon self-published book. So I should say technically a book was published under her name um, after her death. Um, that is a sort of unusual, an odd read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it came kind of late in the process and didn't really give me much more information. I didn't, I had some skepticism about it, um, in reading it. Um, but just to, just to say that she did once something did eventually come out, but not in the way that, you know, it clearly had been an interest of Linda's in the nineties when she seemed so interested in doing a splashy Clinton book, you know? Yeah. It's, it's mild to me that that book, yeah. it never came out in the nineties, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's just another piece of the puzzle to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, let me go back to the broader, broader point of view, uh, which is, this is the third installment in the American crime story, uh, franchise. If you want to think about it that way Mm -hmm. at this point, what do you feel like if you put these three trees in a row, like what is the purpose of the American crime story franchise? Um, the three trees in a row. I mean, I think that I like that phrase. Um, did you make that up or is that an idiom? My English teacher always used to say in high school, she would say, when you want to get, uh, when you want to prove your point, you need three examples because two trees is just two trees, but three trees make a row. Oh, I'm so glad I asked. Okay. Like, that's true. (laughs) Um, you know, I think that, um, I mean, look, I think this, what do they have in common and what you said sort of, what is it? What are these? I think I said, I think I said purpose, but I mean, purpose is a weird word, but just sort of like you know, what do you think if someone thinks of, oh, this is an American crime story show, what, mm-hmm. what does that mean to you? To me, it, it seems what I felt sort of excited by, and I think what's true of all three of these is, of course, telling a story with the distance of a couple of decades that I think in particular, when you look at the um, OJ Simpson season and this one, these are two um, events that you know, dominated media attention to a, what feels like today, especially such an extreme degree. Um, 
and um, made <clears throat> some involve some figures who are already quite famous and like the fall, you know, we have like sort of with OJ Simpson and the Clintons, but you have um, brought regular people into um, infamy or, or fame. And I think the, um, there's two things. One is I think presenting multiple points of view and allowing with a couple of decades of distance, allowing people to draw their own conclusions um, about it. Um, I also think there's a goal, and this is something that my producer Brad Simpson says a lot, and I, it, um, so it's not my original idea. And he and Ryan, um, you know, sort of obviously have been with this from the beginning. And I think the the idea of um, implicating us, implicating the audience, the story is a tragedy. I, I think that um, I, I know when I signed on, I believe Ryan Murphy always had the idea of telling the story from the point of view of Linda, Monica, and Paula, which I thought was really smart because that um, those are not shoes anyone had really walked in before. And um, we should feel, and that's also why I'm careful about saying it's just a story about like the media or blaming like just Jay Leno for his dumb jokes. You know, we should feel that we all participated in this to some degree. Um, that feels also like something I took from the, um, from the previous two seasons, you know, and it was so um, incredible about the experience. I remember when I you know, first watching those OJ Simpson season, you know, I was a kid when it happened, but um, it sounds like a cliche, but to see a story that you felt you knew in, in the new light um, was a, underneath all the delight I took in watching that, you know, incredible piece of work. Right. That complicity sort of mm-hmm. aspect, which is something yeah. that I think we're spending a lot of time on in our culture right now, thinking about the Britney Spears and all the other yeah. people, mostly women who, you know, we have some role in the narrative, mm-hmm. uh, a huge role in the narrative. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you know, so, so I, I, you know, greedily watched all the episodes that we were given. Um, and then I was doing stuff, you know, I, I re-listened to the slow burn season. I watched the Clinton affair. Like I'm all in. Uh, you know, the way that you're thinking about Linda Tripp every day, I'm thinking about your show every day. And, um, and so, and then in watching those pieces, which include, you know, primary source, um, audio and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, helps me understand when you're pulling a line directly from something someone said, right. Versus something that you've had to write. I'm, you know, I don't know every single instance, but you know, you start to, and and sometimes the wildest things that people say are things that are like <laughs> there's actual source audio on them saying it. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that is that somehow maybe even more of a challenge having all of this source material for you as a creator? Is that is that hard to navigate? I loved it, to be honest with you. I just it is a lot. And I remember thinking that when I first started, but I mean three, I would say a few I've had three years now on this, in part because of the um pandemic, you know, we were about to start shooting in March of 2020 and we just suddenly like screeched to a halt. Um, and so I had a lot of time to read all of the grand jury transcripts and FBI 302s that I already had been sort of deep in, but I, I kind of loved it. And I, you know, those real statements, those real lines, you know, give me so much sort of, they give, they give me character, you know, I mean, there's a great exchange on the tapes where like Linda asks Monica, um, if she likes Boston lettuce, you know, and they're just talking about lettuce. And I just, <laughs> I just fucking love that so much, you know, and I, there's a line in, um, um, so, you know, I, I have a, I have a, um, very big appetite for information and research. And I think, and then you just, the, the goal is just to sort of write 
from and, and to focus it, I like to take it all in and then make this sort of and then write from character first um so you know that's how you end up with like scenes in one which you know are you know um uh, some of the details like you know Linda bringing Vince M&Ms and things like that you know you, you sort of pick those out but I, I I have to be grounded in the research to write especially for real people but to be honest, that's not even a sort of a moral thing. Like I'm writing about a real person. I want it to be true. I guess it's that, but I also find that stuff kind of inspiring and exciting. You know, um, it didn't, it didn't bother me to have that much information. Um, I don't think, um, I feel, I feel very attached to that way of writing right now, at least. Well, when you, when you then have to go and invent a scene that happened behind closed doors that we'll mm-hmm. never know exactly what was said, mm-hmm. um, how do you approach that? In contrast depends on who it is and what it is i think sure. like are you thinking of a specific well no i saying, mean yeah. eventually i started taking notice and i'm like okay she she could have no way of knowing what was said here mm-hmm. no one's ever going to say what bill and hillary said to each other in this moment or whatever uh-huh. right um yeah and so how do you approach yeah like let's just say bill and hillary <laughs> uh behind the, oh yeah let's start with an easy one Bill and Hillary yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah. easy. Thank you so yeah. much. Um, uh-huh. I just faint on the zoom. You're like, <laughs> um, like that one is that's, that's not unloaded. I think uh, you do as much research as you can in that case, you know, I think um, because I got so deep into the psychology of Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky, you know, in those tapes, even though, yes, I know Linda knows she was taping those tapes give you so much. So just as a point of contrast, you know, when I was writing Linda Tripp's Linda Tripp's a Christmas party, which I did put a lot of focus on and like that, I, I started, you know, I've, I read like Linda Tripp's emails and I, you know, Ma, I got to know Monica. So I think you're armed with a lot in that situation. And I, the, the conditions that they were in, um, I even had like Linda Tripp's Christmas store. I went to that website so often um, just to like understand how the house would feel and what style of Christmas ornaments she likes. I can talk to you about that for 30 minutes if you want. Um, and I just, so, so there, there's a lot of texture and obviously these were not guarded incredibly famous people so I, you know I really had a, a way in when it comes to the Clintons I mean you read as much as you can um their memoirs um uh, watching interviews watching you know some of their more recent you know there was that thing uh, the documentary on Hulu about Hillary you know yeah. and there's a slight guard being let down but not entirely of course and I totally understand why um and you take your best uh, you know we made the decisions based on all the information we had about what Hillary may or may not have known and how she may or may not have felt. And there is, there does, there do exist some, there is some evidence and there's some, um, there are some sources, um, letters that Hillary Clinton wrote to a friend and a friend's papers that became, that were released at the end of her friend's life that they give a hint as to, um, how Hillary, um, they give a hint as to how Hillary, um, felt and, and how she behaved, you know? Um, but of course there is the act of creation in the center of that, you know, and there's that, there's act, you know, following your instincts based on what you know at the time. Um, and, and there's also the obligation to be telling a story and to make things dramatically legible to people. Um, so it's, you're starting in the same place with the knowledge that you're, as always, you're writing characters and not real people. I know that like, you know, even Monica Lewinsky, who I came to know is the character Monica and not Monica, if that answers your question, if it doesn't no, it sound does. too evasive. Yeah. Okay. It does. Um, I want to actually, I want to zip back to the, the Vince Foster M&Ms, uh, which mm-hmm. is like a beautiful little detail. Um, you start, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, can we spoil history? I don't know, but you start with, <laughs> um, with Vince and Linda, right. And Vince Foster is this figure that, um, 
even folks who aren't like super familiar with what happened at the time is a name that is known because of the Clinton campaign or, you know, the recent Clinton presidential campaign, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. But what's true about as you dig deeper and deeper and deeper into this whole story, what's true about it is like you could do an entire prequel season about just Arkansas, local Arkansas politics. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Vince Foster, a friend of the Clintons who comes to the Clinton white house, who kills himself, who Linda Tripp worked for, you know, that's an incredible sort of, connective tissue that goes back to all this other whitewater stuff in Arkansas. Yeah. My question for you is like, how do you know where to start? How do you mm-hmm. know what other context that all led up to this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think Clinton says something like, or Bill says something like, you know, I made, uh, we lost the money on a real estate deal. And like, all of a sudden we're here. Like that's, that's the, yeah. that's the line uh, that he sees. And so it's like, um, how do you know what to leave out and where to start for the context? Yeah. You're asking me why aren't there like three whitewater episodes? Like slowly take people. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I want <laughs> that three whitewater want. episodes. I don't, I but, it. It, but it's like, no, I'm not saying you did anything wrong, but I'm just sort no, of like, is, how yeah, do you so boring. make that? Yeah. How do you make, like, what did you initially have more whitewater stuff that you're like, okay, listen. I, I mean, look, my, I think one of my, my biggest, I don't know. It's hard to talk to you today as I'm, I'm literally, I'm just in a cage of anxiety about, about everything, but I, <laughs> but I, you know probably the biggest risk I took and my biggest, I think, you know, I, again, like I came in knowing that Ryan, which I was very excited about when to tell those stories from the point of view, Linda, Paula and Monica, when I learned that Linda Tripp, I, you know, worked in the white house, it clearly meant so much to her. Mm-hmm. And then that she was jettisoned to an office in the Pentagon. That to me, that gave me a whole uh, character and, and story, you know, and I, I, um, and as you say, that she worked in the office of Vince Foster, this very, you know, you know, one of the major, it's, it's not fair to call his death a scandal, but that's what was laid at the feet of the Clintons. And Linda was, was there for that. And the last person to see him alive. And she would tell people that I just, I, it, I guess it's all a way of saying is it was character first. And so for me, it was about starting the story um, with Linda. And so that allowed me to, and then I did struggle mightily with like how much white water to get in there because at the time, in that first term of the Clintons, the time she was, she was in the West wing. Um, that's when those scandals started to sort of, you know, whitewater sort of emerged and then reemerged after his, especially after his death. Um, and so I did struggle. I think I have scenes where people talk about it and, you know, getting into the detail and, you know, me trying to make America understand whitewater, um, which I gave up on sort of. Um, and I, I, I never really, because I knew it was from, I knew I was not telling the, the Bill Clinton story or the yeah. Hillary Clinton story. Yeah. You know, I didn't, I, I didn't, I knew I was never going to start in the eighties, which is a f- incredible story. The way, you know, Hillary was culturally processed in Arkansas. I mean, all that stuff is so fascinating, but I kind of knew I was tightly focused on this um, bureaucrat in the beginning because the sort of central relationship, the first half of the season, and maybe you disagree, but it's sort of Linda and Monica. And so it's about bringing Linda to that place because um, as we've said, like, I kind of understand why everyone takes the actions they take. The thing, the central mystery is why someone would, would do what Linda did, um, would, would tape someone in that way. And, you know, that, um, that's what sort of drove me to orient it from her point of view, you know? No, I mean, I, I agree. There's I, a whole, there's a whole like Arkansas story you could tell. I'm sure there will be a great limited series about all the, <laughs> and all the, all the conspiracy theories are quite, they're so extreme, you know, it's, it's really stunning when you get into it. Yeah. People say about the Clintons, you know? 
No, it's 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 wild. And no, I wasn't saying like you should have done anything. And I completely <laughs> agree. Like uh, no, no. And I, I completely yeah. agree that the Linda and Monica uh, of it all is what's really, really interesting. Um, I want to talk about something that I hear people say over and over again, both people who are there who are interviewed and also people just commenting on this time is they talk about the the. Uh, the Clinton affair, however you want to term it, as an mm-hmm. ordeal the nation went through. Mm-hmm. This ordeal of the nation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at first I was sort of scoffing at that. I was like, was this an ordeal or was it sort of a soap opera that we were all sort of invested in? But like, I don't know, I'm starting to take it a little bit more seriously. And I'm just, I'm wondering what you think of this framing of it as, as mm-hmm. something like a... Mm-hmm something that the American public was dragged through. Uh, It's such a good, yes, I do. Because especially as I've reread some of the coverage, like in early 99, after Monica had been famous for the year, you know, she did like a Barbara Walters interview and people were like, oh, we still have to deal with this. And like, there were radio stations that would be like, quote unquote, like Monica free zones as though, I mean, what is that situation? As though people are being, it was like this weird move to pretend we were all being, I mean, you know, we were all being dragged through this, you know, and, and forced to, um, forced to consume this. And then also as, you know, this idea that, um, uh, you know, look, it feels like there's this sort of ancient misogyny underneath all of that, which is that somehow, you know, Monica botched everything and like made us all, made us all like serious people go through this and threatened a thing that actually matters, which is the power of, you know, um, the president, people who people felt very defensive of, um, it really was an interesting rhetorical move at the time. And there was a, I don't know, does it feel like there's like judgment underneath? Like, what does it feel like is underneath that to you, I guess? I was, uh, there was some interview, I think it was like Bruce Udolph, who was, you know, one mm-hmm. of the um, mm-hmm. Penn Star lawyers. I'm saying that for the benefit of the listeners, not you. I know you know who he's, but Sorry, like, like no, 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 that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you know who he is, but like, um, he was saying something about like, you know, the, to get into to the legal minutiae, something mm-hmm. about like, you know, immunity for Monica or settling things earlier or whatever. And he was like, if only we, this, we had been able to do this conversation, Mm -hmm. you know, America would have been spared the ordeal of everything that came after. And I was just like, I think that's so, it makes us as consumers of this, Mm -hmm. um, it casts us as like these innocent victims. Yeah. Don't think we were, do you know? I know. I, I, it's funny. It's hard for me. I haven't really thought about that, but like, there's been something about that. There's something that makes my skin crawl about that too. Um, you know, as though we were all operating in this like morally pure zone in this like fabulous Republic. Um, right. And then somehow, you know, um, you know, it's, it's, it's why people's reactions this were so extreme and why so much hatred landed on Monica. It was, it's the acting out of something, you know, but it just, that just feels fundamentally wrong. Cause I think you use the right word consumer, you know, when you don't, you don't passively consume something, um, you know, it's not like a clockwork orange situation as far as all of that, you know, people were fixated and obsessed. Um, no, I think that's a really good point. You know, to that end, uh, when you talk about this sort of ancient misogyny, uh, running through something that's been wild to me in revisiting a lot of, um, those primary sources, um, are the number of, men who have since been embroiled in their own me too uh scandal mm-hmm. like you watch hillary clinton sit down with matt lauer and mm-hmm. like you're just like what? 
<laughs> what am I watching I this yeah. conversation? Um, and I was wondering if you had any kind of reaction to that of these like figures who crop up and we know so much more about them now than we did then and thinking about how that helps shape what the conversation was given that some of these men were driving what that conversation was. I, I mean, yes, is my, I mean, I, I thought about that. I mean, there's so many things you can point to. Um, um, I don't want to give too much away, but like there, you know, even later in the, in the season, um, the, um, things you haven't yet seen, there's the, the, the figures who, who became notorious in the past few years for the emergence of the Me Too movement. Um, the way all these people are, all these men are sort of still with us many still occupying incredible positions of power, such as the Supreme Court of the United States. It, it is, you know, it was always, you know, in talking, we talked about it constantly. And it's like, how much do you lean on it? How much do you let that just exist? And people draw their own conclusions. Cause it really does feel like, um, you know, it, it feels like they're everywhere. You know, I, I, I it's chill. It's, it's, it's chilling. Obviously, if you want to try to give yourself ironic distance to not feel the pain of it, it's amusing. And, and like, can make sarcastic jokes about it, but it's, it's really stunning. Right. I was surprised by that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it just helps you. It helped me mm-hmm. better understand, better think about, like, I like to think given that I am something approaching a journalist that I, <laughs> that I like to think about who's, who's telling me the, a story at right. any given time. Right. But we can't even know when we're in it, what private things are shaping, uh, you know, this land that people give a story, you know, and yeah, that's, that's well something that, that I thought right. about. Was it well said? I feel, I feel like it's, no, it is okay. because that's what I was going to say. I was just starting to be being sarcastic. You're exactly right. It's like how much, though I am aware that like everyone's sort of going about their mundane day to day, it was like consuming Monica, probably because I identify with that point of view. That, you know, when have I consumed a new story to escape my own, like the thudding hours of quiet loneliness, you know, or whatever. But, but you're right that it's like that, you know, I, of course, um, who's telling the actual story, you know, hosting the today shows is, was an, I remember the nineties. That was such an incredibly powerful position to be in, you know, be interviewing the first lady. And now to know who that person was, I think, yes. You know, how, do, how does that person's assumption shape the way we're taking it in is a really good point, you know? And that's also, you know, I guess that is a, that is something that can change if it will. I don't know. Are you optimistic about that changing? Do you feel like that's changed significantly or is it hard to say because you said when we're in it you don't know well I mean what's definitely true is that you know something that I think I forget who said it um uh, maybe Monica but like some somebody said that they didn't think anything would have gone down exactly the way it did if we had had social media Mm -hmm. then the way that we have it now right and I think the what social media like we could say a lot of things about what social media has done to the institution of the media Mm -hmm. but something and I have, I have a lot of like really prickly opinions about that as, as a journalist, but what's also true about social media is that it has introduced just um, a larger swath of voices and opinions and stuff like that. And I feel mm-hmm. like if more women, not that, not that women were kind to Monica at the time. Right. And they were generally, yeah, for the most part. Yeah. But I think social media is doing a lot to get us to push the needle on some of these perspectives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I have to say that if this happened now, um, I would be hopeful that our perspective would be very different, but who's to say what we're in the midst of judging now that 10 years from now, we'll have regrets about the right. Way. There's that piece of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I also, don't you think, I think about this a lot because 
it's just that a president is such a precious thing to his party, to his faction. Yeah. And I do think that like, we can see like, you know, an executive of a, 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 you know, there can be a CEO or even other um, politicians who are replaceable by a member of their own party or who are essentially replaceable, which is a way of talking about power. How replaceable are you? And I do, the one thing I wonder about is how, panicky people get about losing that person you know in both parties and obviously it can be manifested different ways for cultural reasons but I I do um I thought a lot about how different it would specifically be in that specific situation because I do it's not hard given our current political climate to understand in a terrible way why clearly even Democrats felt very threatened um by yeah. the potential loss of this president and what, you know, what's going to happen? Al Gore is going to be, you know, of course, Al Gore nearly did become president. So it's a bad example, but like, you know, but he right. didn't, you know, it's like people for emotional reasons and also um, strategic reasons are so defensive of their president, of the man who hold, you know, for all these different reasons. And I think, and you know, my, my relationship, uh, because I was like a, a teenager young mm-hmm. when this happened, like, my relationship with Bill Clinton and the legacy of Bill Clinton is always getting, always going to be enormously complicated. That's mm-hmm. just true. Mm-hmm. But I agree with you listening to some of the, you know, self-described feminists who pilloried Monica at the time, a reason justification they gave was he's our president. He's interested in protecting mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade. He's interested in putting women on the Supreme Court. He's interested in all this sort of stuff. So like- Dana Reno's there. Yeah, so yeah. hire Janet Reno and never do a bad thing. Right. right. So <laughs> we're going to be defensive of him. Yeah. We don't know Monica, you know, I don't mm-hmm. know her. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, let me, <laughs> you you brought the lettuce thing. I want to, I, I, I'm not going to keep you too much longer, but I want to okay. ask you about this. Something that is, interwoven in this story even though you Mm -hmm. don't lean too heavily on the gas on it is one of the things that bonded monica and linda linda was their conversations about weight and 90s diet culture this is like the a lot on their tape so it's not something anyone has like invented it's just something that they bonded over you use a pretty light touch in the way that you sprinkle it through but i was wondering like you know like I've heard, I've heard both in your story and on the tapes, you know, them just saying like, oh, I just got off the treadmill. Oh, you're so good. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's a constant refrain of like, oh, I just said, oh, you're so good. Mm-hmm. Like in the way in which you're approaching diet and exercise and the way you think about your body. And I was just wondering like wh- what you were thinking about when you were engaging with nineties diet culture and the way in which we think about these women and how they look. It's a couple of different levels. I mean, fundamentally, like I just, as you say, like, because it was so present on the tapes, it's very present in Monica's story, Monica Lewinsky's memoir from 99 that she wrote with Andrew Morton. Um, And then of course, when the story came out in particular, Monica's body and um, I mean, the, the, the the nicknames made up for her, um, there was this completely, there was apparently complete freedom to just make jokes about it, um, to make jokes about her level of attractiveness around her body. Um, so it always felt like it was part of the story. I felt because it was mentioned on the tapes, it was something that they clearly spoke about. I felt that I, um, you know, it's such a unique relationship they had because they were, you know, they met in this, this office they didn't want to be in. And so there is that sort of like, what is it, what is the thing that you end up talking to your coworker about that's sort of, it's sometimes about something else. And sometimes it's about finding it's, it's about connecting, which they did connect over that. Um, 
so it, it just felt like a part of the story I had to include. I think in particular, when you read Monica's story, it feels very alive. Monica's many moments of Monica's life, her um, experience as a young person around that. It felt like a part of identity, a part of um, cultural control of women that, that, that was landing on them in this very severe way, a way of policing yourself, a way of processing sometimes I think um, self-criticism, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it doesn't escape my notice that these are two women who sort of felt invisible, who had these sort of like office lady jobs that people, you know, people say, hi, how are you doing? When they walk by your desk, so they don't mean it because they're going to see someone who they actually care about or actually matters, you know? And so uh, the ways that that kind of like anger can, can turn inward, I think all of that was in conversation with it. Um, I mean, the lettuce conversation is apparently Linda just saying she likes to have Boston lettuce and eats it only with dill with no dressing. And she says to Linda, sometimes someday I'll make that for you. And like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard in my life. So some of it just like, I don't know, it just, it felt like something I um, essentially had to include because it felt so alive when I read the original texts, if that makes sense. As far as 90s diet culture, I mean, I spent many hours deep in like, there's like a Tumblr with like pictures of 90s diet foods. And I remember growing up among among that, you know, the low fat stuff was everywhere. Those snack wells, you know, it was a very, and it's another thing we could talk about like how different are certain things now, but that was a, you know, that was like a, just a, a thudding constant refrain, right? Like all of that stuff was like, it was just a screaming, um, uh, a message for me as like, yeah, I was sort of preteen and all of us to take in. Um, so I, I was thinking about them in that context too. And there's just something about um, ha- having those little packages that say low fat and carrying them back to your desk. It was tremendously, um, it just felt like it gave it, it, it obviously it's like a, it felt very painful to me, I guess, to be honest. Yeah. Um, it's like story. a, you're just constantly exposing a vulnerability. I think, right? Mm-hmm. In something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. All right. So my last question for you, and this is about um what I think one of the joys of the American Crime Story franchise, um, and other shows like Mrs. America, which is the show that I really loved um last year, yeah. is um Me too. getting to discover these characters sort of below the layer of the ones we're already familiar with. Mm-hmm. So you have like a couple really fun uh figures in here. You've got Susan Carpenter McMillan, played by the great Judith Light, uh, Lucienne Colbert, played by Margot Martindale. Mike Emmerich is a really interesting figure, played yeah, by Colin right. Hanks, because I can't find, like, there's, like, one picture of him well, that exists. Or Get in my car about that, because, yes, <laughs> I can't even, and he actually passed away, by the way. He's not yeah, alive I know. anymore. Yeah, I know, yeah. Um, I, very so, like, mysterious. Yeah. He's very impenetrable. It's really interesting. So, like, mm-hmm. I was just wondering what your most delightful discovery of, of these sort of fringe characters was what was the one that you I, know I did well yeah I mean I think that like the um um I think you know uh, Lucianne Goldberg as like first of all a literary agent who works out of her own apartment and I think it's just like it's like cultivating these like sort of like conservative um, office workers it was like a very funny character to me the fact that Linda like quote unquote has an agent in like the mid-90s you know that that of course and, you know, I think also Lucianne represents this, um, a group of people, I think, who during this time, it just seems to me had like the time of their lives. It was just fun for them. And like that, I was excited to sort of tell that story. You know, I didn't get to, you know, we'll see obviously that like, as the story comes out, like Linda gets to appear, I'm sorry, um, Lucianne gets to appear in all these different talk shows. She's on Hannity and Colm's just like nonstop. And so that was like a fun, Lucianne's voice, her way of speaking 
Oh, is, it in, is it in Clinton Affair where she says they chopped him alive? I just loved her way of speaking. I was like obsessed with it. Yeah. So that was really fun for me. Um, Susan Carpenter McMillan and her like, she has champion Pichon, uh, Bichons and like she's in Pasadena and she's, you know, she's a conservative feminist, which is like not a phrase you usually hear. I got really obsessed with that. I, I, I agree. Those two are great ones to sort of pick out. Um, of course, I was really grabbed by the fact that Ann Coulter and George Conway were like friends in their thirties, like, like living it up. Um, that gets a bit, um, a bit bleak for America when we think about the politics of, um, of those people and, and, um, who Ann Coulter goes on to support politically and all that stuff. Um, but that I, I was, um, I, you know, it, it, to write them as sort of this weird, morally bankrupt Greek chorus was like really up my alley too, you yeah. know? Um, but yeah, I agree about him. Like he, he ended up, I think he, the mystery of him allowed me also to sort of, I think just the mystery of Mike and Mike and the, what the time he spent with Monica on that day is something that really, in a less sort of like um, frothy way was really, I don't know, something very tragic about that to me, but um, that too, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's really, it's a fascinating, he's a fascinating figure. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I, you know, not to give too much away, there is like <laughs> an episode that puts him centrally and and so it's it's interesting to put such an impenetrable real life figure at the center of of an episode like that um all right well thank you so much sarah for chatting with me i could talk to you for hours and hours about me too i want to talk about this um but hopefully we can talk again before i would really love that yeah Yeah. well thank you for watching in and for talking to me and and everything i'm gonna go walk in circles around my block um All right. That is it for still watching this week. Uh, Richard, until next time, where can folks find you? Uh, tweeting at Rylaws, uh, writing at VF.com and working at my Christmas store. <laughs> Katie Rich. Uh, you can find me at VF.com on Little Gold Men um, and on Twitter at uh, Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com as well. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. And you can also find me continuing to pick up my jaw up off the floor at the fact that Monica Lewinsky lived in the Watergate building. (laughs) Until next week, bye! Know that fizzy feeling you get when you read something really good, watch the movie everyone's been talking about, or catch the show the internet can't get over? At the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast, we chase that feeling five times a week. We talk about the buzziest movies, TV, music, books, and more. From lowbrow to highbrow to in between, catch the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.